Hi, it's Lou. I just wanted to let you know what's new and what's still around for Square Pegs in 2022. The Patreon membership is still up and running. The address for that is patreon.com forward slash square peg round hole. And don't forget that W for the word hole. I really appreciate any contribution that anyone can provide to help me to keep this podcast going and to pay for some of the ongoing costs associated with it. It's very, very much appreciated. So thank you so much to my Patreon members as always. Something I did develop at the end of last year was a new website. On that website, there are podcast episodes, transcripts, there's a huge resource library, there's news and information on advocacy projects. The address for the website is squarepegroundhole.com.au. Speaking of advocacy projects, I wanted to let you know that I've been successful since starting the podcast in actually getting a seat at the table with the Federal Education Department. That is the Minister's Office and the Task Force that advise the Minister. So I will keep everyone posted on that work and thank you to everyone who is contributing to that. Many people know I have two Facebook groups or pages. There's a public page and there's a closed group. Please feel free to apply to join the closed group. It's where we discuss a lot of the episodes and some of the advocacy work that we're working on. And I just finally wanted to say it is my only ambition to speak on behalf of parents when I speak. I will never speak on behalf of any group to which I cannot represent with lived experience. I don't speak on behalf of neurodivergent people. However, I am very happy to bring neurodivergent people along to discussions and to share with us all. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you find it helpful. Thank you. Thanks so much to Monique for becoming my latest Patreon member. So appreciated, Monique. Thanks and welcome aboard. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. Are you ready to celebrate autistic identities, embrace the autistic community and empower autistic individuals? Because that is what we're going to do today. If you've listened to all the episodes of this podcast, and I really hope you have, you will realise by now that I have been on a journey. I'm still on it. This is a journey away from behaviourism, from the early days of punishment towards my own children. Today I realise what I didn't know before. Dr Melanie Hayworth has also been on that journey. Melanie is an Australian autistic woman, a self and systemic advocate for the autistic community, Reframing Autism's founder and CEO, a PhD candidate and proud mother and educator to her three autistic children. Melanie also writes picture books and Reframing Autism have a podcast as well. Links will be in the show notes and on the website. Today we will learn more about this amazing woman and the organisation she founded, 
The discussion gives us all more insights to our beautiful kids and gives a platform for autistic voices to be heard. And as I've promised from the start, I will not speak for or over the community, but I promise to provide a platform to let them speak up so that we all may learn how to embrace difference in our society, a process I happily and gratefully facilitate. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Melanie Hayworth. Thank you so much, Lou. And I'm going to call you Mel from now on because you've just told me that that's what you prefer, so that's no problem. Um, Mel, it's really great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm I'm super excited actually because I've, I guess, more recently been seeing and um, it's kind of come across my screen, if you like, uh, a lot of the brilliant work your organisation, Reframing Autism, does. And I've been, I even went into school this week, my school, with my own son and shared some of the information that you have a language guide so it's wonderful the work you're doing and I can't wait to hear more about that but before we get into the the meaty part of the discussion uh, I have some icebreaker questions so that you can kind of you know we can get to know you a bit and we can have a bit of fun before we start so my first question is what's your favorite animal Mel and why is that your favorite animal thank you for that lovely introduction my favorite animal Absolutely, without doubt, are otters, but Mustelidae more broadly, so the family that sort of go around otters as well. And Ooh. there's a there's a number of reasons. Partly, you know, otters and Mustelidae are absolutely fierce and ruthless hunters. They're hugely creative, which I love, and they're so playful and gorgeous, and they're undeniably cute. <laughs> and I'm a big I'm big for cutesy, but I also when I first started learning about otters, I just was so taken with the idea that they hold hands, sea otters hold hands when oh, they sleep. Oh, you do, yeah. Yeah, and they, they make a raft of otters. So, and, and it's because they don't want to float away from each other. And I just love the idea that you need your family so much that you literally tie yourself together with paws and with kelp so you don't lose each other. And stoats and weasels, which are other members of the Mustelidae family, do a war dance to hypnotise their prey. <laughs> that just really tickles my fancy. Oh, so um, that it doesn't know it's going to be eaten. <laughs> Yes, so um, if if you if the listeners do nothing else, they should just go and get Google a YouTube video of of a of a weasel or a stoat's war dance that they do before they, they get on their prey. It's both is funny and also kind of as I said, hugely creative and absolutely ruthless and fierce. So for all of those reasons, I, I love oh, this. I love this. This is the best. I love that so much. Wow, we're starting off with a with a wonderful. You sound very interesting. <laughs> Oh, this is great. And so that's interesting. So my next question is, if there was one thing you could change in the world, Mel, what would it be and why? This is a bit more serious now, I, I guess. I was going to say, this, this sort yeah. of seems like a bit of a cruel question, really, because, yeah, just one thing's really hard. I, I want to say something about racial injustice or disability justice or injustice, um, the refugee crises that are around the world, action on climate change, all of those sorts of things. But I actually think... 
if there's one thing I could change right now, it'd probably be to sort of dismantle all the repressive barriers of privilege that oppress and other so many minorities in so many ways, and even not minorities, majorities as well, in fact. Um, I really think that globally we'd be so much more likely to come together as a kind of human collective to address so many social and environmental issues if we were actually able to undermine some of the pillars of privilege um, that allow people in power effectively to ignore that the issues even exist. And I think if people confronted their own privilege and generally you know, really genuinely question the values they've built on their privilege, I think we'd be in such a much better position. And a lot of those racial disability, refugee, climate, you know, a lot of those issues, I think, rest on the pillars of um, of the privilege of a few. You don't know this, I assume, but this is actually so, so relevant to the work I'm trying to do in advocacy with Australia's politicians. I, I um, didn't know that. So there we go. I'm, I'm all ears. Well, well, we'll maybe talk about this another time. <laughs> but hopefully, um, or the listeners to this podcast have seen, if they're involved with me in terms of my Facebook group and the work I've been doing with advocacy, especially at the um, recently at the federal level, they would understand that that is everything you just said in that very well captured phrase about the privilege is very much affecting the current situation in uh, the education system of this country. So, um, yes, anyway, we'll talk about this another yeah. time. But how, <laughs> I can, I can, We're going to get on really well. <laughs> we will. And this always happens to me when I'm doing these interviews because, you know, that's why you're here because you're, you're one of my people. <laughs> Absolutely. We're, we're in this together. So let's keep going. So, um, we would like to get like to actually get to know you a bit better. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your life growing up and how you found yourself doing what you are doing today and and if you can link that please to the connection of the concept of the square peg trying to fit into the round hole. I'll, I'll do my best. But I was I was I'm Australian. My dad's English. I was born in Darwin, so not in a not in a metropolitan sort of um, Darwin in the 19 19- 80s 70s 80s was you know fairly fairly small little city because dad was English very early in our lives he took us back to see his family and took us back to see England my sister and I and it really became part of my psyche that I was I was so attached to this kind of concept of English history medieval history in particular always has been an absolute passion of mine and and sort of underpinned everything that I was through my formative years, all the books I read, everything that I, all the, my whole identity was formed around medieval studies. So at a time when sort of my peers were wondering what they would do when they grow up or did, weren't even thinking about it, I had already decided that I was going to go and work in a university and be a professor of medieval history. And I knew that from seven years old and it never occurred to me to question it ever. And I went through my whole my whole life really until very recently thinking that that was what I was going to do and absolutely certain in the knowledge that I was a medievalist and that's you know, <laughs> where I was born to be and I was born to be in a university. And here I am not doing medieval studies or in a university. So clearly that worked out really well. You know, my my young life was, I had an extremely happy home life. I have a 
amazing relationship with my beautiful mum and dad. Really, I had one or two extremely close friends. I had a very unhappy school life and a very unhappy social life and I wasn't well liked. <laughs> Mm. And, you know, I had all the things that you would expect for, a, you know, an unidentified autistic person growing up who was so unusual in many ways. So very much the square peg was round hole concept resonates for me socially. You know, I did brilliantly academically. I was fine in the academics, but it didn't matter what I did and how nice I could be or how open I would be or how friendly or giving or how much I would serve others. I just was never liked and people just didn't like me and always saw something in me that I couldn't understand what it was that that they didn't like. So I spent my life really, particularly my teenage years, I spent my life in the library, in my local library and in my school library. And I devoured books. I was a chronic insomniac. So I would only sleep sort of a few hours a night and I would read. And my best friends and my friends were always the characters in the books. And I always resonated with the people who were excluded and alone and who had a big fight to try and be accepted as they were. And But I do count my book characters my best friends and I still do. And, and I think that's partly because it is really hard to find social acceptance among people but as I said my mum and dad always really worked as my social my best friend who remains my best friend you know I had some small I only needed a few people but um yeah my my school life wasn't exactly happy and then I did what I thought I was going to do I went into I went straight into an arts degree at the University of Sydney to do medieval studies then I went straight into my PhD in medieval studies. I got married, we went to London and I did more work on my PhD in London. So everything was seemed on track for me being a medievalist and having a position in a university. And then we had kids and my eldest was a divine little person, but he needed a lot more of me than I could ever have anticipated before I had children. I think it's very hard for any non-parent to anticipate just what that that you know that need is and I needed to make a choice between my work and my baby because I wasn't able to multitask and I wasn't able to do both I didn't feel because I can only do things at a hundred and ten percent so strangely enough I chose my baby (laughs) and it was not really a choice and I think there was a lot of grief for me because obviously I'd lived my life thinking that this was who I was going to be and and I realized that you know, I didn't want to take him to England to get a job there and take him away from all my my parents and, uh, you know, the sorts of things that we would have needed to do. I didn't want to be alone. And I had postnatal depression. I found it really difficult to adjust to being a parent because unlike in academic work where, you know, you have great control over what you put out, children are humans and they don't follow the textbook. They forgot to read it, I think. Um, or they did read it and they deliberately threw it out the window. Either or, I'm not sure yet. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I decided that I would focus on my babies. And I had three babies in very quick succession. So there's about, there's just three years between the three of them. So they were 18, about 18 months apart. And then really it was only as my youngest was about two, as my youngest was about two and my eldest was five, that autism sort of burst into our life. The eldest had gone to school and was fairly quickly identified as autistic. 
the youngest was then very quickly identified as autistic and then my middle child and I were identified as autistic together very quickly. So we had the four of us in very quick succession really identified. That's kind of, it was a sort of a natural progression for me that in order to build the life I wanted for my children, to make the difference I wanted to make to their community to which they belonged, that was where I needed to go. So that's kind of how I ended up here doing what I do today, which was sort of, eventually I am sort of returning to research as well. And so I do see that I will get back to at least part of that vision of of being in a, maybe not being in a university, but at least being a researcher. So it'll all come full circle eventually. Well, I hope you do go back to what, you know, your original passion was as well. And I'm sure as the kids get older, that may become easier. And you've actually headed into the next question. Thank you very much for that wonderful answer to that the first part. Of course, I'm sitting here, of course, as I always do going, yep. Yeah, I get it. Especially when you said grief and, you you know, you mentioned um, that things were not what you anticipated they would be and not what you thought it was going to be and um, and yet you've learnt. And that's what I want to explore next with you is what was the initial reaction of you and your husband, I guess, and, and your own reaction to where do I fit into all of this and their identities and your identity as it's developed, you know, what, what was... How did that go? Look, I mean, I think um, I always knew that my eldest was very different to the other children. And I think probably parents and autistic parents out there will resonate with the kind of, you know, I would go to mother's group was the bane of my life because I felt I needed to be social again you know I uh, round hole square peg and and trying to be social and trying to work out how to you know befriend other mothers and make a social connection for my child and I worked out very quickly that my child was not <laughs> doing interested in behaving developing in the same way that any other child was uh, in the mother's group was and that so that became very isolating in and of itself but when by the time my eldest was diagnosed formally I think I kind of already knew it wasn't a it was this was there was no shock and I know that for some parents um, there's a there's a massive shock that comes with that and I don't think for me there was there was a huge relief in in being able to take some proactive steps that I could actually understand what was happening um, and, and how to support him better so that was my first I think my first response was really relief as I said because the four of us were identified in such sort of fairly quick succession you know I think we we did have a it was a big relief just to it was a relief for me to look and think you know to have an explanation and to look at each of the kids and be able to look at them as individuals there was such a liberation in just thinking I didn't have to I just don't have to worry about typical development trajectories anymore. They can just go out the window. I don't have to worry that they don't, that they're not fitting into that. You know, I was such, such an academic. So even though I'd given, I'd let go of the sort of the idea that I was going to be a medievalist, my first response as soon as autism was mentioned was to enroll in a um, postgraduate diploma in autism so I could learn about it. Because, you know, what else do you do if you're an academic? You go back to uni and learn about things. It made me uncomfortable and was the first time I think I've ever even confronted the idea that academics might not have, research might not have the answers I was looking for. So there was extreme discomfort just in that one fact because all my life I'd sort of put such stock in 
the idea that research and academics sort of drive things forward. And here it seemed there was, I was so uncomfortable. But through that course, I started to investigate sort of mental health outcomes for the community and mortality outcomes and quality of life outcomes. And that was a really scary period. And I was crippled by anxiety and about what this meant for my kids. And I realized quite quickly that it wasn't because they were autistic. It was because everything around them seemed to be wrong and not designed for them. And it was that that was causing these dire mental health outcomes and these dire mortality outcomes, these dire quality of our, uh, life outcomes. You know, I did a positive behaviour support course at about the same time and it was really uncomfortable. Just everything, I, I was such a anxiety, anxious and uncomfortable period, but not because of the autistic part. It was because the more I learned, the more I realised that there was so much to do to make the world the kind of world I wanted my kids to grow up in. And so I think through the through that discomfort, I learned a lot. And I, I, come to, I came to really realise that it, the status quo, you know, all the things that people were telling me were making things worse, not better. And that's when I sort of start, started to stumble across autistic people talking about themselves. So um, Michelle Swans. She was then Michelle Sutton's, the real experts and the respectfully connected site were absolutely life transforming. I realized a lot of my concerns were actually not around autism, but around parenting more generally. So I started to, you know, explore peaceful parenting and Ross Green's, you know, explosive child, hate the title of the book, Mona Delahook's Beyond Behaviors. These were all things that started to resonate with me in a, in a new way. So I think we kind of got to that point where I moved through the discomfort that actually Actually, academics wasn't where the answers were to actually finding people who were giving me answers were the autistic community. How fascinating, you know, that like you say, you were so kind of linked to academia and that was the way that you thought the world kind of should go. Turns out that you questioned it. And again, I can relate to that feeling of uncomfortable. Mm, it's just not right. This positive behavior it just doesn't oh it just didn't feel right to me it didn't feel and it didn't right work <laughs> it and didn't it didn't work. work I was so I, you know I'm very I was so diligent about the whole thing because I thought this would be the answer because it seemed you know it wasn't deficits based it was strengths based and it was really only as I explored that I realized that that strength based was just a veneer it wasn't actually a strength based it was just a kind of a, a nice um a nice sticky you put on the outside of a deficits base and I think it was you know as I said it was through the discomfort of of realizing that this might work for a little while but then it didn't work and at what point and at what was I teaching my children and what values and did they align with my values and all of this sort of stuff all that discomfort that we learned and we came together as a family to do something very very different so mm, wonderful wonderful and it just another person guys this is another person that's telling us the same message so thank you so much uh, I just get it validated every time I speak to someone who actually actually understands with lived experience I was going to ask you a little bit more about I guess the general moving up I mean your children and having your children is what and it's for, for most of us is what leads us to our special understanding of of what's going on can you tell me were there other things that that indicated to you that there was something missing in terms of the way society in general interacted with the autistic community yeah i mean clearly there was this sort of just 
when I had the sort of the research and the autistic adults side by side, there was this sort of really, there was a disjunct. There was this complete disconnect between what autistic adults were saying and what non-autistics were telling me. I preferred the former. I preferred what autistic adults were saying. But, I mean, I think in terms of what was missing, it was just so obvious both through the services that we tried to access and the um, the schools, the, the services, that there was no acceptance, there was no respect and I mean, I think one of the one of the principles of peaceful parenting that I really took took away was that children are humans. They're not. They deserve the same dignity and respect and forgiveness and you know approach that every human does. And they don't. They're not less human because they're not adults. And I think a lot of parenting, and particularly in you know when when you get to more behaviorist kinds of parenting approaches, we forget that our children are humans. And that they're not automatons. They're not that we can't program them to do what we want to do. And and so, I think that was that lack of, just the lack of acceptance that my child was a human being with dignity and rights and who deserved respect for no other reason than they were on this world as a human. Um, I think that was a real. There was that was definitely missing. And obviously that you know as I said that the veneer on things you know if you scraped too 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 deeply you saw the sort of the the gulf of deficits that really underpinned the values that most of the people we worked with you know they wanted to change my kids you know I have a huge I have a personally have a huge need for autonomy and control you know it's one of my my autistic you know traits um characteristics so I watched people I kind of you know, listen to people talking to me about how I needed to take control from my children and take control of my children. Um, and this was just anathema to me. I, I couldn't understand how anyone, how my children could be happy because I could understand how petrifying it is when control is taken from you and someone tries to control you and the idea and when I would try and talk to people about this and talk about autonomy and self-determination which are two things that are sort of you know privileged pivotal to my parenting and what I need for myself and what I want to give to my kids people were they they basically laughed that that this is not how you parent I'll never I'll never have a good life because this is not how you parent people you you parent children by showing them who's boss and asserting control and those kinds of things and and I think that idea that you could just treat my children my human beautiful gorgeous persons (laughs) like they were objects, not humans. I, I just, it was just such anathema to me. And, and you know, and then, you know, we would go into schools and not necessarily in the schools, but the social setting around the schools. I mean, I will I will not forget. I tried again, you know, it, I seem to be glutton for punishment. I tried to do canteen to try and, you know, build some relationships with other with other parents to sort of help with, you know, the relationships so that my, you know, my, my child might be invited to a play date if I was more friendly with the parents. And I did a lot of self-blame around that, you know, that I was, I, I'm not very socially um, active. So maybe I was sort of stripping my kids of social opportunities. And I'll never forget being in the canteen and two of the mums sort of corralling me, basically saying, so what's wrong with your kid? Like, what's up with him? And just being really? devastated by the ignorance and the bias that was just, um, yeah, it was exactly that. You know, what's wrong with your kid? Just what's, what's up with him? 
and you know that kind of thing it's just it's just it was it was devastating and I think that narrative of burden as well I think that's the other thing that's present that should be missing perhaps that we always were asking too much people people indicated that I asked too much of them that I wanted too much that this wasn't in their remit or their job when really all I was asking was for my the the kids basic human rights to be respected and their rights as people to be respected and I don't think that's too much to ask for so that that sort of they'll never cope in the real world there'll be a burden on society they'll never be able to live independently if you keep going like this that that kind of that thing is just it's so damaging it's it erodes so much of who we are so I think all of those things kind of shaped where I am yeah it's essentially it's the expectation that the child needs to change or be fixed in some way and what I've learned and I've seen some really great memes from your organization and the ICANN network and some others where they're saying and the kids are saying this themselves. The young people, are, we're finally listening to their voices saying, why is it that I always have to change? Why exactly. can't my friends around me learn to understand me and how I operate and how I think? And, yeah, it's a very good question. <laughs> Don't blame them for asking it. And I think there's, you know, something that I'm coming to more recently is, you know, and in discussion with, you know, therapists and neuroaffirming therapists is it's not, it's not that it's terrible to teach your child, your autistic child, some non-autistic social skills. That's not what the issue is. But you call them non-autistic social skills and then you also teach the non-autistic child autistic social skills so that there's no privilege involved in well these are social skills no these are non-autistic social skills autistics have our own social skills and if we start to be reciprocal about how we talk about these things it's a cross-cultural exchange you're not it's not that one is better or than another it's just that we're different and in order to come together we both have to learn a little bit about each other and I think that's definitely missing I don't know that there are many people who are who are unconscious enough of their language to say you know I'm going to teach you some non-autistic social skills but I think it's really important to name what we're doing because we don't lack social skills we lack non-autistic social skills social skills and we neurotypicals lack autistic, autistic social sorry, skills. exactly exactly and I think you know it's it's the, the this uh, you know Damien Milton's double empathy problem has been one of the like another life-changing sort of moment for me when I read about Damien Milton's a UK academic and he writes about that bi-directionality and the fact that currently it's always about the autistic changing you know because the neuronormative kinds of standards are privileged as better and once we can take that, and it goes back to my original thing, once we start to take those privilege, that privilege away, it's not about better, it's about difference. And as I said, I mean, I almost think of it as, as a cultural interaction and, you know, we need to, we need to do that cross-cultural exchange of information and this is what works for us and this is what works for you and we can meet you halfway to, to have a beautiful relationship. But we need to name things as they are rather than giving privilege to to things by you know by by clumsy or or unconscious language and that kind of stuff sorry that's not that's not to do with the question um I've gone off on my own tangent now (laughs) no one no one so far that I've spoken to has expressed it that way and so that's what I why I love talking to so many different people because you all have everyone has a different way of seeing things and 
that is that's really struck a chord with me I didn't I've not heard it expressed that way before that's brilliant thank you so much it's really really good and yes I was going to ask you about school and I know you've already given us an example of something that sounded really awful that you went through but I guess I wanted to talk a bit more about I mean school is the first place where many families see what's really going on. It's often a time where the damage of inherent ableism, behaviourism and exclusion is first experienced. That's what I mean by that. So many families suffer through school or feel the need to engage with segregation or homeschooling and many of the neurodivergent kids just cannot attend school at all and we're seeing those statistics grow exponentially. So can you tell us how the school experience has affected you and your family and what are you observing about what's happening in education? Gosh, this is such a big question, so you might have to rein me in um, at some okay. point. Because um, <laughs> education is one of my passions. Uh, it's, it's Me too, so we're in trouble. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a passion because it, it's failing so dismally, or, well, depending on your perspective, I suppose. It's failing. It's failing all children, I would argue, but that's not the topic of today's conversation, but it's certainly failing autistic children. I'll turn it around a little bit. When I decided to homeschool my eldest, the mental health burden that was relieved, that was taken away from both of us, was too immense to just to say. It was just the relief that we didn't have to do school anymore, formal schooling, and that we could do it our way in our home and he could be safe and I could trust that he was safe. And it wasn't, there was so so much relief. And then when my middle child decided the same, there was that same relief all over again. And my littlest has never been to school. I, I suppose if you wanted one word about my school experience, it was traumatic. It was traumatic for all of us in different ways. We all have trauma from school. As a parent who tried to advocate, who was who experienced, again, um, people dismissing me, excluding me, marginalising me, stigmatising me as a parent. Yeah, and again, I... I imagine a lot of people will have gone through the same kind of hysterical mother, you know, over-exaggerated, he doesn't do that at school, he's fine, that kind of, you know, the usual thing that is so, that so undermines our self-efficacy as parents. I was exhausted. I was exhausted by school because it was a constant battle to change with people who didn't want to change, who didn't see a need to change and a system that doesn't want to change and doesn't see a need to change. And I think eventually I just ran out of capacity to advocate for, again, what were essentially superficial changes that weren't really impacting the deeper deficit space, um, the deeper ableism that just permeates the whole school department education structure. And, and all I was doing, I was exhausted just trying to make the superficial changes that would make my kids safe and not even getting to the, to the, to the good, you know, to the deep stuff. You know, in terms of a broader thing around education, it's really, I think what we've missed and, you know, I, I recently published an article with a team from Macquarie University and around the world about educational experiences of kids during COVID, um, during homeschool and why some of our kids, our autistic kids thrived actually during homeschooling and we accessed, again, we listened to young people's voices as well as to their parents who were autistic and non-autistic about why they thought their kids were thriving in environments that probably should have been really stressful and should have been suboptimal. 
Um, and part of that was just that the parents really deeply cared enough to look after their kids in a way that was informed and responsive and that engendered trust. And so kids began to learn because in order to learn, you need all of those ingredients. You need to be able to trust. You need to know you have good um, relationships. You need to feel like you have something to offer. You need to feel safe. Um, so it was it was amazing to actually listen to kids talk about the fact that even though they they didn't necessarily love that their parents were their teacher, um, what's called the ethics of care that came with their parents, you know, they, they had a real commitment to caring to understanding and to being responsive to their to their young person and to their mental health needs and to the stresses that were happening in the world around them. And actually kids thrived when they had people who cared about them. And I think it's it's such a dire indictment on our schooling system that the one one of the one of, there were three things that, that we kind of found kids really wanted. And and one of the biggest things was just making sure that there was somebody who cared about them and that that wasn't something that kids necessarily were experiencing in school. And if you're interested, the other two were um, that they had a lot more flexibility. So routine, this idea that all our kids need a visual schedule and routine and strict routine. Actually, a, a, a lot of, particularly in high school, a lot of our young people would like to be able to self-prescribe their routine. So it can be responsive to what they need. It can be responsive to their own learning preferences. It can be, you know, I didn't sleep well last night. I can't stick to that routine today. I'll, I'll set my routine. So the idea that we all need this prescribed, this externally prescribed structure that can't move because we couldn't possibly do with change is just such a it's such a generalisation and it's, it's, it's wrong. I mean, you know, most of us do love structure and routine, but the idea that we would actually be able to set some of that for ourselves and, and actually direct some of that is really important. And, of course, the other one was around safe, uh, a safe physical space in terms of sensory and social overwhelm, which is not going to surprise anyone. And, of course, in at home it's, it's much that you've only got one set of expectations, there's not all the social interaction, there's not all the sensory stuff. So that's not so surprising. But I think the other two, I think, were very surprising and, talk to us about what we need to be doing differently in our schools to serve it, to really serve our kids. And the only other thing I would say is I think, you know, I got to a point as a parent where I, you know, I even though I understood that essentially school was just becoming a sort of a glorified babysitting service, a place I could send, you know, not that, not that we got through many full days, but, you know, a, a place where I could send my child and they, they weren't with me. I, I watched... And looking back, I can see my expectations, my what I wanted from the school decreasing, or what I wanted from the school for my child, my children decreasing. So at first, I wanted you know a, you know a fabulous education, and I wanted them to be engaged learners, and I wanted them to be curious, and I wanted them to be passionate, um, and have you know full social lives. And eventually, I think by the time I pulled the kids out, I just wanted them not to be harmed not to be actively traumatized we have to continue to fight collectively as you know all together all all of us as parents fight for our kids rights to have that passionate curious engaged education that is what I was going to ask you the whole time I was thinking when you were talking a hundred percent have heard what you're saying before from other people I, I relate to it myself I the rigidity of the school. I mean, they talk about the rigidity of our kids, but <laughs> the rigidity of the school system and the schools, the way they 
seem to be working in the 1950s sometimes. You know, this, oh, this old school approach is just appalling. But what I, I'm thinking the whole time is I just feel like why should you have to take your kids out of school? to get them what they are legally entitled to receive, which is an inclusive education where they are understood, where they receive care and recognition and they feel safe and they feel like they can learn and they get access to be able to learn. And, I mean, I know I know why you did it and you've done the right thing for your family, but it just really, do you feel like our kids are ever going to actually achieve their rights or access their rights to an education at school with everyone else? Yeah, look, I mean, I think in Australia, we have such a really, really long way to go. If you look at the UNCRPD, the United Nations, um, you know, around and you look at the article that is around um, education and the general comment on that article, which then sort of went through and, and expounded on, you know, what they actually meant by all of these things. Um, part of part of the ways that the UN suggests that you measure how inclusive your your system is is by how much you know it, it, you're meant to be directing your funding as a and this is a government you know a, a, at a federal and state level directing funding away from segregated segregated environments and you know so whether that's schools for a special purpose so you know your, your schools specifically for autistic or multicategorical um, disability schools, whether it's um, what in New South Wales and I know in different states will be called different things that we call support units or, you know, where you have a, a classroom that's integrated but not inclusive. And, and I think if you look at our funding and the way that we are, in fact, we're, we're, we continue to fund segregated. Well, there's just been a $50 million school built in Queensland in the last few weeks, special school. And, and you, you, we, we are funding, the, the government is funding special special schools. Schools, um, I, I hate that term, but, you know, that, that's what they're, that's their technical That's what they get right? called. That's, that's, what, that's what they, they get called. signpost out um, the front, special school. You know, and I think it says, it's not even that we're, I mean, if you then look at the values and the conditions that that inclusion, not including, so I think we have to just ignore this idea of including is inclusion and we have to get a much more robust definition of what inclusion is. But if we think about ideas of welcome and belonging, right, so, you know, that our kids feel welcome and that they belong as their intact selves, authentic selves, which is how they're going to learn best because it's only when they're not, they're not trying to mask, they're not trying to deal with um, other kinds of overwhelm, that they know that they're understood, that they know that they're safe and that they have trusting relationships. That's how we're going to learn as, as you know, that's how every person learns. Without those things, we don't learn, we don't thrive. And, and we can't even begin to think about having those conversations because the government still puts funding into segregated. We're not, we're not even, we're not even at including. So how far have we got to go before we talk about inclusion? So, I mean, that's not to say we give up, but I, I do think we have a very, very long way to go. And, and it, it, it is demoralizing for, um, and this is probably more personally, you know, I would, I would put maybe put on a different hat if I was talking. <laughs> I was talking, you know, a, as an advocate. But personally, it does seem demoralising that um, there's just such a long way to go, and we're, we're fighting a system that also is is entrenched and doesn't want to change, doesn't see a need to change, 
it goes back to privilege. They don't need to reflect on their values because it doesn't affect them. So yeah, it's amazing how these things go around and meet up with each other again <laughs> when you keep talking. Well, look, that was that was a really robust and fabulous conversation about school. And, um, you know, once again, just reiterates what we know is happening. And don't worry, I'm not going to give up. I don't know about <laughs> anyone else. But I have, you know, talking about passions and interests, this is my hyper focus. So I'm not going Excellent. anywhere. We need more. We need more <laughs> There's people. one person. <laughs> no, we need, we need lots. Come on. We yeah, all, no, no, we'll it's all right. There are. Well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping the people listening are going to be like, oh, what can I do to help? I'm, I am getting more messages these days actually from people saying, I want to get involved, which is a really good thing. It is. Okay, so let's move on um, to talk about reframing autism, your organisation. Can you talk to us? I mean, you, I noticed when I went on your website, obviously, to research for today, I noticed four words that appeared straight away. Respect, accept, embrace, empower. And I noticed that you have a number of different resources there, guidelines and things that people can use. I noticed you're involved in advocacy. What actually, can you tell us about reframing autism? Why is it there? Why did you create it? Um, What do you actually do? And how are you involving autistic voices with the work that you do? Reframing autism is my fourth baby. I wasn't allowed to have a fourth baby. So this, I have reframing autism instead. In terms of Respect, accept, embrace, empower. When we first were trying to make reframing autism a proper charity rather than it started off as a sort of a, a support, sort of an autistic-led support group for a few non-autistic families in a local early intervention centre that I was doing some peer work at. And I noticed straight away that needed to hear autistic voices. They needed to talk about, to, to listen to the experiences of an autistic adult. And so it sort of started very small with just a few families and it burgeoned very, very quickly. And then we got some funding and we were trying to, you know, turn what was, you know, what had just been a little sort of supportish group um, into a proper tar- charity. And we were looking for a tagline. So, you know, reframing autism, something. People have taglines. It's what you do. And, and I think respect, accept, embrace, empower was it for me, was all the things I wanted um, and had an experience. I, I think we're routinely denied the respect of basic human rights. I think very rarely are autistics accepted as authentically autistic. You know, there's some really interesting research on implicit bias and how people see implicitly rather than explicitly um, autistics and you know we're, we're not accepted as when we are authentically autistic and I think you know the accept part of it is that often our internalized ableism that narrative in our head that's been driven by those pervasive experiences of marginalization and exclusion means that we don't accept ourselves as authentically autistic either so you know I think there's there's a lot of elements to accept But as I talked about, you know, that sort of cross-cultural exchange, I think autistic culture is part of the rich diversity of human cultures and we should be embraced. Our culture, um, autism should be embraced for the unique perspectives it has to offer and as individuals we need to feel embraced and welcome and valued, again, as our intact selves, as our authentic selves. Um, So it's that belonging, I think. And empower is always a hard one. I know a lot of people don't like the word particularly, but we're a neuro minority that is routinely stigmatised and disempowered. 
And I think it's the it's the antidote to disempowerment, which I do see is empowerment, obviously. And I, and I think for most of us, our personal and our collective autonomy um, are stripped from us at such an early age, and that really needs to change. So that kind of guides everything we do at RA, at Reframing Autism. All of our projects are going to rest on those values. And I hope also not just for us as an autistic community, but for they, they're the values we extend to all sorts of intersectional communities and marginalised popularities and uh, populations and, and minorities. I think there's a we're trying to be aware of our privilege in different places and intersectionality that we, you know, and that kind of thing and, and bring those those values to other work that we do too. But in terms of what we actually do and our autistic voices, well, um, we're autistic led in all ways. So our full, we have nine staff at the moment and we're all autistic. Our board of directors is fully neurodivergent and all of the senior positions are filled by autistic people. So our chairperson is autistic, our secretary is autistic, and the majority of our board members are also autistic. So we have, we have a you know, really strong autistic people throughout our organisation, obviously. And we try and always partner and, you know, every project we partner first and foremost with other autistic people. We try and provide opportunities for as many autistic voices to contribute to different things that we do as much as possible. We're always looking for new autistic voices to, you know, write blogs or do podcasts or run masterclasses or whatever, you know, whatever it is. I think when we first started, you know, we we sort of had an idea of being sort of information and education and advocacy and research. But I think really at the moment we belong squarely in the education sort of, you know, an adult education service because what we're doing is really offering opportunities for everybody, for all people, whether that's autistic people themselves, non-autistic parents, autistic parents, non-autistic professionals, autistic professionals who work with autistic people, offering all sorts of different sorts of groups access to autistic voices and experiential expertise and valuing that experiential expertise just as that, as expertise, that autistic people have a particular unique expertise that they have to offer and it's only through having you know robust opportunities to share that that we can get those voices um, and a diversity of voices however they communicate and, and you know global voices coming together to talk for us so you know we do lots of things we do lots of events you know we have a biannual symposium we run a certificate in autistic well-being we have a research network we do parent retreats we do workshops and professional development and master classes and we've got a youtube channel and there's social media and there's blogs and podcasts and i don't know how we get it all done but somehow <laughs> it all happens um, i have seen the youtube channel as well yeah you're doing an amazing amazing job and i imagine that the the kind of, well, I don't know if this is the right word to use, but the kind of explosion of adult identifying autistic and ADHD and other neurodivergences, a lot of people I hear, anyway, who approach me are in the process of getting their own diagnosis. So you must be getting a lot of people who've, like you and me, who have had the kids and then find out, you know, oh, well, actually I'm neurodivergent as well. Do you find yes. that? Yes, absolutely. And and I think we had, um, I, I mean, initially, as I said, it grew from a, a support group for parents. But really, one of the things that we noticed very quickly was that 
autistic adults, whether they self-identify or they're just questioning or they are formally diagnosed because, you know, one of our things is that diagnosis is a privilege um, and it's not a privilege as it's extended to every person. So, you know, there's no judgment from us as to whether you self-identify or have a formal diagnosis because diagnosis can be a, a privilege for, for, for the few. And I think there are um, a lot of people who don't who don't have the either the financial or the emotional or the mental or actually the health support to go forward and get yeah it. I was just yeah. going to say that I think there's a lot of people that get sent away exactly and that lack of understanding is, is you know it's a big issue the certificate in autistic well-being which was something we piloted at the begin- the end of last year and we're about to run again was first and foremost for autistics who wanted to know more about themselves about how their brains work about their reactions and their responses and so that they can foster their own well-being because that's something we can't you know formal advocacy systemic advocacy is not for everyone but being able to foster your own well-being and foster the well-being of the autistic people you love is is something really important and I think that focus on well-being is something that's missing a lot we need to and, and for me, you know, and partly this is the way my brain works, but, you know, in order to exercise the sorts of self-compassion and that we need to in order to live well and to have well-being and to flourish and thrive, you know, we need to know about ourselves better. So knowledge is, you know, the knowledge is power thing is really important. So I think there's still a lot of uh, a lot of autistic adults who are newer to the journey and even those who have been on the journey for a very long time don't necessarily have the right kinds of information to frame their journey so that they can look at themselves with compassion and pride and and build that you know I know it's a trite saying uh, you know it's very NDIS that good life but also you know build our well-being so that we can we can experience the sorts of quality of life outcomes that we actually deserve which are and that kind of thing so I think that's that's kind of where we're leading a lot too as well is that if we can help parents to do that to, to foster well-being in their children that's one big thing and if we can foster well-being in autistic adults then the more the more out and proud autistic adults we have, the more visible and represented we are as a community and the better our social sort of collective self-esteem and all those sorts of things. Oh, there's so many intersectional things with this. You know, it's um, I, I'm thinking about, you know, teenagers, like I'm thinking about my own son who, you know, we have been so open with him and, and he, you know, we actively talk about his own identity and self-awareness and, you know, there's, you should feel very comfortable and proud to be autistic and you know we try try to just generally just talk that way and it's not that easy for people you know it's not just a matter of saying tick that box you're authentic (laughs) you know you're you're autistic and you should just that's great move on I imagine there are people like you said that have either newly identified or just trying to understand themselves for years and years and years it might take for some people to to really feel that that authenticity and I think without without the, I mean, authenticity only comes when you're able to, when you experience acceptance from people so that you feel like you could be authentic around them and when you accept yourself. Because if you don't accept yourself, then you're unlikely to act authentically because you, you don't want, you don't like that authentic person. So, you know, it's, it's that we have to build self-acceptance in the, in the population and in our community, as well as acceptance from the outside and inside, I think is really important. And just the other thing 
because I haven't talked about my PhD yet, and that seems like a bit of a that, that seems a bit of an oversight on my part. I should have at least mentioned it. Um, so this is my second PhD because why not? Typical autistic thing to do. So obviously my first one not in autism, but this one squarely in in autism. And you know, I'm I'm really interested in building parental capacity for insightfulness into their into their autistic child and insightfulness is a is a psychological sort of construct it's around most parents have going to have heard have heard about theory of mind which is sort of one of the things that apparently autistics are really bad at and perspective taking that's you know those those are those are yeah you know those kinds of things are, are things that we're often accused that we can't sort of take somebody else's perspective and we don't have any theory of mind and insightfulness is sort of a, a, a construct that sort of belongs in that whole mentalization so understanding other people's mental states and how they operate as mental beings that are separate from yourself but every person autistic or not actually struggles with mentalization or you know not not many of us are naturally able to be you know, to mentalize or to to be insightful about what's going on in somebody else's head but that's particularly true when we've got across neurotypes so when you either there's an an autistic parent and a non-autistic child or a non-autistic parent and an autistic child that kind of yeah that insightfulness there's an extra barrier there because we are looking at that cross-cultural kind of that disjunct between understanding what I might be feeling and doing in this scenario is not what you will be because your brain works differently and so that neurotype actually puts a barrier between for us to be insightful so I mean part of what I'm working on I'm hoping um, will be eventually to do an autistic led parent insightfulness training so that um, which will be relevant for all ages of children but we often get asked if I if I don't, you say not to do ABA, but if I don't do ABA, then what? Then, you know, if I don't do an, an, an EIBI, what do I do? And I would really like to be able to provide an answer to that. that and, in, or, you know, actually just getting to know your child through autistic voices is actually a brilliant way of building your insightfulness into what's happening in your child's brain and what they might be going through in a particular scenario and understanding the differences between your reaction and their reaction or your response and their response and then being able to formulate something that's empathetic from our perspective as parents we have to be I think you know one of the things we need to build a lot more is empathy for our kids so that's kind of where my my PhD sits very firmly in trying to find a solution to that how do we how do we parent our autistic kids with empathy and respect for who they are and and I think my answer would be we do that with insightfulness and knowledge and that's going to help us to build um, the kinds of relationships, those trusting relationships that we need with our kids and loving relationships, obviously. Wow. Wow. Again, I'm sitting here, that is so brilliant. I'm so, that's actually got me really excited because, uh, you know, I, you just said something along the lines of parents say, well, if you don't want me to do ABA, what do I do? I have asked that actual question. Not that I even realised I was doing ABA or behaviourism in the early years, but when I did, when I was on that kind of paradigm mind shift, you know, and realising that what the approach we had in the past was wrong or I don't want to continue with that, I was thinking, well, what do I do then? How do I do this? So that's, yeah, and, and understanding 
that perspective and having that insight into our kids, especially for first-generation neurodivergent families like ours, and there's lots of people we don't realise we're not really first-generation, but we feel like we are. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And I think, you know, look, even for not first-generation, I think there's always learning to be done as well and and unlearning as well because we all you know, received messages and received truths need to be, you know, interrogated and analysed. It's the no better, do better thing. It is the no better, do better thing. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's, that's been really important for me as well. You know, you're not going to get it right. You're not going to get it right every time. And gosh, there are things I look back at and wish I could change. But I think the better thing is, for me, I channel all of that regret into doing better and and knowing everything I can, and, you know, you know, channeling all my efforts into knowing as much as I can so that I can do better. Continue to do better. I'm, I'm with you on that 100%. Now, it's really the way of dealing with the trauma of, of the realisation exactly. of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. But this all, it's all, of course, it's always so brilliant. And I love hearing people like yourself talk because it's just, it's just pure gold for all of us. Just quickly, can you tell us uh, key things that are happening in this year, 2022? And then can you tell us any key mentors? You've mentioned quite a few already resources or books or things that I can link in the show notes for people that have really helped you. Sure, sure. So big things, we've revamped the Certificate in Autistic Wellbeing. Um, We're running it for autistics. We're running it for parents of autistics, of autistic children um, across the lifespan. And we're running it for professionals who look after autistics. So that's going to be a huge focus for us this year, because we think that that's where we can really make a difference on people's, not just their explicit biases, but their implicit biases as well. Our major funding runs out at the end of the beginning of next year. So if anyone's looking to have has some spare money that they, <laughs> we could do with a couple of million dollars, but I presume that there's no one listening who's got a couple of spare million dollars for us, but <laughs> we need some funding. So that'll <laughs> be... I'll have it first, That's part of, you know, the, 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 the reality of charities is that we need to, to look to make sure that we can be sustainable. And obviously, um, I think for me, last year, I think I probably worked about a 65-hour week most weeks. And this year, I my, my personal thing is about self-care and making a bit better work-life balance. And, and, you know, and giving the kids that the time that they need. So they know that mummy does important things that will help their community, but I'd like to be able to actually spend just some spend some time with them because they're divine and I love them and um, they're so much fun to be around. And in terms of mentors and resources and things, um, I think, yeah, I've mentioned a few Beyond Behaviours by Mona Delahook, Alfie Cohn, and these are not autism specific, but I think they just work so well for us, you know, Unconditional Parenting by Alfie Cohn. The Explosive Child, Ross Green, Ignore the Title, Totally Hideous, The Book's Gold, um, Raising Human Beings, another Ross Green. I think Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson's, um, there's a series of books, The Power of Showing Up, The Yes Brain, No Drama Discipline, The Whole Brain Child, any of those, they're brilliant. Yeah, really, really good. Again, none of them are autism specific, but actually I think the best books are not autism specific (laughs) in terms of books that have actually helped. As I said, you know, Peaceful Parenting, Ella Nost, she's, you know, I think a lot of people think of Peaceful Parenting as some, you know, bit of a hippie unparenting movement, but actually it's really a conscious, um, engaged, and it's ultimately actually really hugely intensive parenting style because of the respect 
it offers your children. And I think the benefits for our autistic puppets is really huge. And if you don't know them, Neuroclastic and Nick Walker were absolutely fundamental to my understanding of autism. So, and just a shout out to um, Yen Perkis and Wen Lawson, who have been my mentors and have really encouraged me and helped me to be where I am today. So I wouldn't be here without the, them both. So I've been, I've just started following Yen um, and they are just brilliant. I'm really enjoying following them and also um, a few others that come up on my Facebook. Yeah, I, I do learn a lot just from just reading their posts. And, and Yen is prolific. So, you know, if, if again, we'll always have something new for you to read. So that's good. And and Wen Lawson is a is, is an autistic researcher who has been so, and, and again, so instrumental to building the pride of the autistic community, but also the intersectional community, LGBTQIA plus communities and non-speaking autistic communities when is when is a phenomenon and. Um, I, I do, I, I do see that. So, yeah, thank you. I, I agree. Yeah, well, that's it really, isn't it? <laughs> wow, we finished. <laughs> Look at that. We did it. I just get so thoughtful. I'm listening, you know, I'm just sitting there going, oh, wow, wow. Um, so uh, get a bit carried away. But, look, I think we're pretty much finished now, haven't we? Probably have to finish. <laughs> yep, that's I'm, – I'm, I'm, I'm Are you happy? happy? <laughs> yes, yeah. I think so. Thank you. Well, look, I will sign us off now. Uh, hang on there for me, Mel. And uh, I just want to say before you go, thank you so much. I, I hope the listeners have got so much out of this conversation. It's been really brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for being here. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Lou. Okay. Signing us off from the podcast now. Bye. Bye. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushell Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushell. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushell. And remember, just be nice to one another.